the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. The world is a complicated place. You need someone to expose the political fakers, fixers, and takers, and to cut through the mindless chatter and misdirection to help you make sense of it all. That person is Dan Proft, and this is The Dan Proft Show. Welcome to this VP Debate Night edition of The Dan Proft Show. And coming up in uh, an hour and a half, once the debate concludes, we will be taking your calls. 888-291-2222, 888-291-2222. 888-291-2222, 888-291-2222. So uh, look forward to getting your reactions to the Pence and Reparation H performances. Uh, but in the interim, we've got some big issues to discuss, including issues uh, that are no longer being covered. Byron York writing over in the Washington Examiner. Remember the riots? Question mark. Uh, remember when uh, uh, violence on America's streets was being covered organized violence violence intended as part of well a marxist overthrow of the government defunding police uh releasing criminals from prisons and the like he uh, points out it, it actually is still there it's just the dc press corps has turned its complete attention to all things trump covid related because it's the topic they want to cover but he he notes that um in portland this past Sunday morning, Portland officer was doing paperwork in his car when a rioter smashed a window and filled the car with pepper spray. The officer managed to radio a description of his attacker, later arrested. Uh, police report, and, and he goes into some of the details on who this is. Um, uh, Andy No, the intrepid street journalist who was almost beaten to death by Antifa in Portland, provided a uh, mugshot of uh, the individual charged with attacking that police vehicle and that officer. Uh, and um, there's been trouble in Seattle and Washington, D.C. in the last few days as well, reports York. You just probably haven't heard of it. In Portland, if Antifa is an idea, it's an idea armed with window punch tools, pepper spray, throwing knives, a laser pointer, slingshot, rocks, and more. Perhaps if the violence were covered more in the media, Biden would be forced to defend his indefensible claim from debate number one. You remember that. This said, is a left-wing white supremacist. Antifa's an idea, not an organization. Oh, you got it. Not malicious. That's what okay. his an idea. FBI, his okay. FBI director Gentlemen, said. Well, then, you know what? No, 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 we're, done, we're done, sir. Everybody, we're moving on to the next. We're moving on to the next. Yeah, uh, it's, uh, and it, first of all, the idea that he would make a statement like that is ridiculous enough. The idea that he does so by purposely mischaracterizing the comments of FBI Director Ray makes it that much worse. But Antifa is uh, much more than an idea, as Byron York notes with tongue in cheek. Uh, It's uh, an organized effort. We've got undercover reporting from Project Veritas that we've played on this show a number of times. They got into the Rose City, which is Portland, Antifa. And uh, now we have a first-person account from Erin Smith. Uh, This uh, from an interview that she gave to Reason Magazine that I mentioned earlier in the week. 
the conservative trans woman who went undercover with Antifa in Portland. Aaron Smith joins us now. Aaron, thanks for being with us. Appreciate it. Thank you so much, Dan, for having me on. I really appreciate it. You spoke uh, in that reason piece from a place, you know, why would somebody do this? And you don't like bullies. And so you wanted to understand how this is operating so you could expose exactly what they're doing for the purposes of ending the organized violence that's associated with Antifa. That was my understanding. But you put it in your own words in terms of the the motivation to to, uh, do this undercover work. I have been dealing with Antifa since 2016. I've had my friends threatened, um, physically assaulted. You know, I've done a lot of activism work for free speech. So I've been targeted by them. My friends have been targeted by them as well. And I can assure you, it's definitely more than an idea. Well, well, um, why are they being, why are you and your friends being targeted? Just because you're Trump supporters or why? Yeah, just because we're Trump supporters. You know, we lived in the Bay Area and we're just outspoken. I mean, there's people who are pretty mainstream conservatives. Um, You know, they call themselves anti-fascists. But the thing is, how they define fascists is basically anyone who's not them or anyone who's center left moving to the right. So they have a very expansive definition of what that means. Um, Yeah, you know, I have I have. I was involved with the San Francisco Republican Party. So, you know, it's, and that was part of it, too, is being a Republican in the Bay Area and being very outspoken made me a target. And, um, and also, sorry, go ahead. No, I, 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 you know, your your undercover work is really interesting because you you, you sort of piece together how the this organization actually works in, in practice. And so I just wanted to make sure our audience could get some of those details from you. Um, And and it's interesting, too, because the language you use is similar to the language used by James O'Keefe and his reporting from Project Veritas and others uh, talking about affinity groups and black bloc. Explain what these terms mean. Give us a sense of what the organization looks like, how it operates. Yeah, there's there's several different layers. I mean, it is decentralized, but it's you know, it's not necessarily strictly hierarchical. But an affinity group is basically a group of people that know each other and are politically compatible that decide to work together towards some political end. And they use something called direct action, which is basically anything where you attempt to directly change whatever it is you're upset about. It's like a terrorist cell, but they call it an affinity group. Black block is a tactic. It's just it, basically people that dress up in solid black because it ma- it makes you blend in with everyone else. Like you can't really identify the people that do any particular crime because, you know, what can you say? It's like it's the mass person dressed in black when there's like 200, 300 people dressed right. like that. You can't narrow it down. It's very difficult. An example of this, this decentralization that you're speaking of and a decentralization, but yet direct action. Uh, a concrete example that you participated in was the effort to burn down the Portland Police Association building. Yeah, exactly. They did, like I talked about in the piece, they did what's called a semi-open block, which is if you're dressed in black and you show up, you can join in. They won't tell you what's going on. You kind of have to tag along. And they have these core affinity groups that do all of the planning. And they're very dedicated, fairly well-practiced. And, you know, I was standing there in the block, and then we all move over towards the building, and then they pull, start pulling tools out of backpacks and start tearing the door off. And then, you know, they tore the door off the police association building and then set it on fire. You know, I, I didn't know at the time, right before they did it, they said, hey, somebody stood up and said, hey, everyone, you see all these people dressed in black? That means something's about to go down. So if you don't want to be here when something goes down, you should probably leave. And then everyone walked over the building, and that's when I'm like, oh, okay, they're setting the building on fire. So it was definitely <laughs> something they planned. In, in terms of their approach, this, this, this is not like the weather other underground of the 60s where they want to take credit for the violence. They, they try to cast themselves as victims here, right? 
Very much, yeah. They're they're doing something, and I, I touched on this, and I wrote another piece that discussed it as well. Um, what they're doing is something called a dilemma action, and it's a very calibrated approach. Like they don't just immediately show up somewhere and start doing a ton of damage and violence. They want they show some they go somewhere, they pick a target, and they start slowly ramping up the damage until the police are forced to respond. And they usually have other people with them as well, like regular protesters that are working with Black Bloc, or they're aligned with them. I mean, everyone kind of knows what's going on. It's one, one giant open secret, and they have their aligned, they have their um, sympathetic press with them, and they're trying to get these visuals of the police responding to the Black Bloc damage, what they're doing, and it looks like they're having to force their way through normal protesters or use flashbangs and tear gas on them. Um, and then, like a what they'll do is they're like when I was with them, they were retreating into the neighborhoods and forcing the police to follow along with them. And you've probably seen footage of the Portland Police Bureau, you know, working through neighborhoods and they're having to shoot, you know, tear gas and flashbangs at Black Block in a in a suburban neighborhood. And one thing that they will do is they have these medic collectives. And after they do that, over the next few days, they will have these medic collectives go around and to these neighborhoods, knock on doors, give them supplies like disinfectants and just, you know, um, hand sanitizer and brochures on like how to respond and how to protect yourself from tear gas and flashbangs. And it's, it's kind of a community outreach thing. And that's kind of what the dilemma action is. It forces your opponent to either back down and look weak or react certain way that makes them look like the bad guys. What, what do they think of uh, politicians like Ted Wheeler in Portland or Jenny Durkin in Seattle, uh, 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 Gavin Newsom and, and, and Garrett Garcetti in California? What do they think of politicians that do just that, back down and appease them? Oh, they, they absolutely hate, hate them. I mean, it, it's kind <laughs> of ironic because, you know, if, like the people like you and me, like we think people like Gavin or, or Ted Wheeler are fairly far left. But like they think they're basic, they call them basically fascists. They, from their perspective, like Ted Wheeler's far right. I mean, that's how far left they are. Um, you know, they they really and they hate them. They, you know, weakness is a really bad thing to show to them. And and um, and do you did you get any sense? I know everybody's all uh, masked up, but did you get any sense of like the profile? Who who are the members of Antifa? It's predominantly white people um, in their early twenties to early to mid thirties, you know, you can see the booking photos and there's a lot of people, there are some street kids, but there's also some very successful people. Like I've seen like in the, like in the Bay area, for example, we've had a lot of business people and, you know, people with the dance degrees get arrested for stuff like that. So it's, it's mostly, you know, a lot of urban kind of Bernie Sanders supporters, people mm-hmm. like that. Conservative trans woman who went undercover with Antifa in Portland that's Aaron Smith, uh, interview in Reason Magazine, which I'll tweet out at Dan Prof Show. Aaron Smith, thank you for doing the undercover work, number one, and uh, thank you for your perspective. Appreciate it. Thank you, Dan. Take care. Exposing political fakers, fixers, and takers. He's Dan Proft, and this is The Dan Proft Show.
Welcome back to the show. Picking up on our conversation with Aaron Smith, we're going to talk to PowerlineBlog.com's John Hinderaker about uh, Antifa and street violence, the coup attempt that's ongoing in addition to the failed coup attempt per the president's announcement yesterday that he is declassifying, declassifying all documents associated with both the Russian collusion investigation and the Hillary Clinton email investigation. And a reminder, at the bottom of next hour, as soon as the vice presidential debate concludes, uh, we're taking your calls, getting your reactions, 888-291-2222. Do you still think he can win? Obviously, I'm talking about Ted Wheeler, the mayor of Portland. Ted Wheeler trailing by double digits to an Antifa-identified opponent named Sarah Iannarone, according to a survey conducted by the Portland Business Alliance. There is such a thing? The Portland Business Alliance, they must have their meetings in phone booths. Wheeler gave over the city to Antifa. You might as well elect the authentic. This is how appeasement ends, by the way. A little lesson for those who support the appeasement of the mob and the politicians appeasing them. This is how it ends with the mob taking over. It would be fitting if this woman who was accused of inciting violence in late 2019, tweeting out there should be no safe haven for people affiliated with domestic terrorists and white national extremists in our sanctuary city. These were, um, you know, directed at who she describes as domestic terrorists, which would basically be anybody who disagrees with her. You you think this is over the unrest that we've seen? The frankly unrest, I'm using a euphemism, the attempted Marxist revolution that is underway. That's what this is. Angela Davis. Oh, Dan, she's a communist. Why do we have to pay attention to Angela Davis? Because this is center cut for Black Lives Matter and uh, mayoral candidates in Portland. Angela Davis writing in Medium, why arguments against abolition inevitably fail. She's talking about the abolition of police, just so we're clear. Both policing and punishment are firmly rooted in racism. Their attempts to control indigenous black Latino populations. And she gives her stilted view of history to try to justify that statement. Both policing and punishment. Did you get to that last part? That's the new thing. Defund the police and eliminate punishment. The evolution and expression of the police and the prisons are constant reminders that capitalism has always fundamentally relied on racism to sustain itself. There it is. We have to upend the system, how we organize ourselves economically as well as civilly. Security is not possible as long as the physical, mental, and spiritual health of our communities is ignored. Armed human beings officially trained in efficient methods of administering death and violence should not be dispatched in response to a black woman experiencing an episode related to a psychiatric disability, for example. Safety and security require education, housing, job, arts, music, recreation. Huh? If uh, funds currently directed toward uh, police, ICE, jails, prisons... Immigration, uh, immigrant detention facilities were rerouted toward the public good, the need and justification for steadily expanding institutions of state violence. That's what the police are. Institutions of state violence would certainly decline. Oh, that's Angela Davis. That's not going to be put in practice by anybody. Oh, really? For those who recognize that racism feeds the proliferation of police violence and the decades old surge of prison populations, but who still insist that these institutions are simply in need of deliberate reform it might be helpful to reflect on the fact that similar logic was used about slavery. Those attempting to, uh, to like Senator Tim Scott, for example, do anything in the direction of uh, sensible reforms or incentives for reform at the local level, which is really what it is, you might as well defend slavery is the argument. This is on the ballot on November 3rd. No question about it. And this is being underappreciated and under-discussed even uh, in, 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 described 
in an understated way, the same way that this failed coup attempt is being underreported, underdiscussed, and understated in a material way. This is a, an ongoing coup attempt, and we have a failed coup attempt. For more on this, we're pleased to be joined by John Hindraker, president of the Center of the American Experiment and, of course, uh, founder of the Powerline blog, powerlineblog.com, which is must-reading. John, thanks for joining us again. Appreciate it. I, I know you have written about the uh, release of the declassification of the documents related to the failed coup attempt. But before we get to that, what about this other coup attempt that's afoot, as evidenced in Portland and Seattle and in uh, op-ed pages and so forth? Well, it's unbelievable. The mostly peaceful protests and so on. I mean, there's this whole effort in the press and on the part of the Democratic Party to kind of sterilize the attempted Marxist takeover of the United States. And, you know, cities can die. I, I don't know why anyone still lives in Portland. Maybe they can't sell their houses. Maybe, you know, it takes time to move your business. They've got to wait for the lease to run out. I don't know. But, you know, that city is going to die the way things are going. Let's talk about what President Trump has done on the failed coup attempt. Uh, this one, the one we were discussing, is underway. The failed coup attempt, Trump announcing yesterday, I have fully authorized the total declassification of any and all documents pertaining to the single greatest hoax or single greatest political crime in American history, the Russia hoax. Likewise, the Hillary Clinton email scandal, no redactions. Uh, long overdue, isn't it? Well, it's about three and a half years overdue, Dan. I'll never understand why this didn't happen a long time ago. I suppose it's taken the people inside the administration, those who are not still hostile to President Trump, and as you know, the federal bureaucracy, most of it has been fighting him every step of the way. I suppose it's taken them this long to, to themselves uh, start to get to the bottom of it. But with, with the latest release of documents, I, I think that what happened here is, is finally starting to come into focus. But here's the issue. You have uh, Jim Comey ducking questions, Andy McCabe ducking more testimony altogether, and, uh, of course, Brennan calling the uh, declassifications uh, outrageous and so on and so forth. But until you have some sort of authority and some individuals beyond the behind Kleinsmith, the, the, you know, the flunky who altered an email, brought to justice, named people in all of this, it still sounds, I think, to the uh, sort of – half-interested observer as, oh, you know, they're saying uh, Russia's in bed with uh, Trump's in bed with Russia. Trump's saying they were actually in bed with Russia. And it's just a, a sort of a wash. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that the likelihood of criminal prosecutions of any of these people is very remote, honestly. Yeah. Uh, it's zero, of course, if Trump loses the election. I think even if he gets reelected, I, it's, it's likely remote. I don't know that most of what they did that was horrible, you know, was it was illegal. It was bad. But I, I don't know about illegal. Um, and I don't, I, you know, I hope I'm wrong, but I don't think we're going to see any criminal accountability. What I hope we do see is a clarifying of the historical record. Yeah. Because what happened here, the FBI, the CIA, the various organs, the Department of Justice of the Obama administration trying to swing the election in favor of Hillary Clinton and having failed at that, trying to undermine and destroy the incoming new administration of Donald Trump. This is by far the biggest scandal in American history. We have never seen anything like it. And, that, and, and again, that commitment was made by Attorney General Barr, who strikes me as pretty no-nonsense guy, who's proven up on the things he said, but, but not this so far. And I understand to some extent it's out of his hands with the uh, the time that Durham is taking to complete his investigation. But but he made that commitment nonetheless. So he had to be confident he was going to be able to deliver on it. I think they're going to deliver on it. Uh, it may be too late to to impact um, next month's election. 
but I think they're going to deliver on it in substance. And, and if they declassify all these documents without redactions, hallelujah. You know, we may not ever know the whole truth, but I think the picture is going to be pretty clear. He is John Hendraker, president of the Center of the American Experiment, co-founder uh, of the Powerline blog, powerlineblog.com. John, thanks as always for joining us. Appreciate it. Thank you. It's got what it takes. So tell me why can this be love? Straight from my heart. Oh, tell me why can this be love? Listen to podcast of the show at danproftshow.com. Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show. Heather McDonald writing in City Journal, our friend Heather McDonald, about uh, the furor surrounding President Trump for his uh, pronouncements about uh, COVID per his infection late last week into this week, particularly uh, his response upon leaving Walter Reed Hospital to go back to the White House. She writes that Trump needs to tell the American public something it has needed to hear from a political leader for months. We must go on with our lives. There will be more coronavirus cases. There will be tragically more deaths, but we cannot shut down our human interactions in order to prevent one kind of death. And I would add to the exclusion of all others, which is how it's being treated culturally. Back to McDonald. We have never done that. And the consequences of having done so this year will cripple human life for generations to come if we do not overcome fear now. Under today's safetyism mentality, sacrifice and risk-taking become unthinkable. The martial virtues of courage and stoicism have been sidelined and pathologized. Reopening is still the right policy. Mandatory outwear, outdoor uh, mask wearing is merely a way for government to turn citizens into walking billboards of fear, sending the false message that danger is everywhere, even though we know infection rarely leads to death. Uh, when uh, the reaction to Trump saying, don't be afraid of COVID, don't let it dominate your life, was, of course, hysteria from the panic-stricken D.C. press corps. And I think performance-oriented panic-stricken D.C. press corps. Heather McDonald writes, let them fume. Trump is now modeling masculine leadership at its best. Upbeat, rational, unbowed. Uh, I want to go back to those martial virtues he mentioned, courage and stoicism. Again, to cite C.S. Lewis, the formation of every virtue at its testing point. If you are not courageous, it is impossible to possess any other virtue because you wilt when challenged. So for those who believe that we have nothing to fear but being afraid, you are not being courageous, and therefore it is impossible for you to be virtuous despite the D.C. press corps trying to pump you up. You may be self-righteous. Self-righteous, not a synonym for virtue. Really good piece at spectator.org by Rabbi Shemuel Klatskin about redemption. Colonel George once observed that about modern society that we permit everything and we forgive nothing. Rabbi Klatskin takes up that last part of it, the prospect of redemption, and that there needs to be a pathway to redemption, including in our politics, if we're going to foster any sort of comedy and have a civil society and a just one. For more on the topic, we're pleased to be joined by the aforesaid Rabbi Klatskin, who is the rabbi of the Chabad of Greater Dayton, Ohio, adjunct professor at Antioch University, and senior editor of curriculum at JLI. Rabbi Klatskin, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. 
A real pleasure. Before we get to uh, your observations on redemption, which were um, really well considered, this idea of um, the martial virtues that Heather McDonald writes about, courage and stoicism, do you agree with her that what you're witnessing uh, these days is a bit of a lack of courage where it's appropriate? I, I, that, that hits a sweet spot with me. I immediately, when she said those words, martial virtues, it brings me back to something that Churchill said uh, right before the Second World War about that with effort we can retain, we can regain those martial virtues that we had. And uh, we see the example of superb leadership that actually brought about a revival from lying down at the feet of tyrants to uh, staunch resistance that held the line when everyone else in the world was either not entering the fight or had succumbed to uh, to Nazi tyranny. Speaking of uh, tyrants, uh, that takes things that makes me think of New York City and state, of course. And uh, Cuomo and particularly de Blasio, their attitude toward the Orthodox Jewish community with respect to covid protocols is really something breathtaking. Going back several months where de Blasio suggested he would shut synagogues down permanently if anybody didn't follow his orders as a rabbi, how do you react to how uh, Orthodox Jews are being treated in New York City? Well, uh, de Blasio has shown uh, animus for quite some time. There seems to be something personal in it. I don't know what it is, what he's seeking to gain, but uh, it, it's, it, it seems fairly clear that uh, he's bothered by uh, people who have a firm set of values other than the ones uh, imposed by his state. Uh, that that's the way it is so often in, in the last 150 years with the emergence of these uh, philosophies of government where there's no transcendent source for anything. It's all the power is its own justification. And people who dare to base their lives on something other than what the government allows them are real enemies of the state. When we come back with Rabbi Klatskin, we turn to the topic of redemption. Stay tuned. For more of it. We're back with Rabbi Klatskin. Before the break, we were discussing uh, New York City's rather uh, shameful treatment of Orthodox Jews as it pertains to COVID-19 policy. I mean, over the top in terms of authoritarian in nature, particularly with the threatening of uh, Jewish houses of worship, for goodness sakes. I want to get to what you wrote in your piece regarding redemption, political redemption as well. You write, American history has its moments of political redemption, and they're worth contemplating. And, you know, particularly so in a time where if you uh, uh, tweet something that is misinterpreted, then you are irredeemable. You are lost forever. Uh, And so um, so the examples you give, I mean, the Ulysses S. Grant example is is such a great one. Uh, Why don't you recount that for us in terms of your larger point? Uh, it's an amazing incident. Uh, the history of, of Europe, and for that matter, of, of North Africa and of, of the East of Western Asia, is replete with incidents of Jewish communities 
uh, being expelled or ghettoized uh, up to and up to massacres uh, time and again. And and America was in the chapter in history. America was something extraordinarily different. George Washington's welcome to the Jewish community in a letter that he wrote in response to the Newport congregation's uh, sending official welcomes to him when he came to celebrate the 13th of the 13th colony states originally, uh, finally ratifying the Constitution, spoke of America a place to no longer have to speak of people being tolerated as if one group of citizens uh, would you know, condescend to allow others a few rights. But we're all equally citizens. And that was a great, and that's been America at its best. And yet, when we descended into the pit of civil war with brother killing brother, sister killing sister, that was true as well, though not nearly as, in its great numbers, you had this horrible incident where uh, you, General Grant, before he rose to his fame, he was, he was heading the armies in what was called the Department of the Tennessee, and it was in the winter of 1862. He had just suffered uh, a small humiliation of a Confederate raid had uh, you know caught one of his generals by surprise, and thousands were taken prisoner, and the supplies were torched. And uh, whatever mood he was in, he shortly thereafter issues a uh, an order. It was called General Orders Number Eleven, and exactly in the, that with the with the plural in their orders, even though it was just one Number Eleven, in which Jews as a class, as his language, were expelled from that entire area, which stretched from about Aero, Illinois all through, uh, down through uh, w- uh, western Kentucky, down into northern Mississippi, where his army uh, had, had sway. So there were some somewhat sizable Jewish communities out there. Uh, Paducah was one of the places, and uh, it happened to be there was a man there who was a union supporter, who was given this order, as the whole community was, to pick up and put whatever they could into, uh, into their wagons and get out of town everything behind their business, their homes, whatever they could carry is all they could take with them and be gone, get out of that whole area. This guy decided uh, he had the, the virtue of courage. He started organizing a fight and shortly he got himself into Washington uh, where he was soon able to get an audience with President Lincoln. And uh, Lincoln immediately countermanded the order. Uh, and uh, nothing was said of it. So this was an incident where Jews were actually in the United States of America as a class, expelled from a whole from a whole area. But the point of my essay was that here was a guy who had done something horrible, and yet he found a way to redemption, personal and political. By the time Grant had uh, won the war uh, for the Union, and then had won the presidency in 1868, uh, he had come to a different place in his life. He had realized what the nature of the fight was for. The fight had been uh, for the realization of the American ideals of all men are created equal, uh, finally taking a step beyond the, the plague of, uh, of slavery. And realizing that, he understood himself, and there's plenty of evidence to show. There was a marvelous book written by the historian Jonathan Sarna about it, uh, came about five years ago, uh, just goes about it in detail. He realized that what he had done had been a horrible mistake, and he did what he could to make it better. Uh, An extraordinary incident that I wrote about in the essay was a rabbi who was a, a cousin of a man who later became the, uh, the, the, the famous Lubavitcher Rebbe in, in, in Brooklyn, 
was on the scene back at that time, came to visit President Grant and brought to his attention the persecution that was going on in Romania at that time, uh, 1869 into 1870, um, where Jews were being disenfranchised and Jews were being persecuted and eventually uh, murdered. And uh, he said it would make a real great statement if you appointed a Jew as America's diplomat to Bucharest, to the Romanian capital. And that is exactly what Grant did. Uh, and it was indicative of his general turn. He became a spokesman for uh, human rights worldwide, mm. something that American presidents had been unable to do beforehand. Um, it was an extraordinary case in the 1850s during uh, Buchanan's presidency where there had been uh, a Jewish child in the Papal States in Italy who had been uh, forcibly taken away from his parents uh, because his, the maid in the house had, without the parents' knowledge or consent, taken the, the little child to church, had him baptized, and then the, the, the police came and said, now the child is Christian, you can't, you can't raise the child. Uh, the Prime Minister of England uh, protested, the President of France protested, Buchanan was asked, but how could he stand up and talk about human rights when we had slavery and, and all the southern states in this country? So Grant was a person who, who learned from his mistakes. He brought redemption to center stage. And uh, it's, 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 uh, it's not only uh, in harmony with America's ideals, but in harmony with our deepest Judeo-Christian ideals at the core of, of, of what's common to our uh, religious traditions is the idea that human beings can make terrible mistakes, can really sin, uh, but God welcomes us back. And the point is not to be perfect, but to be able to recognize and return from something we've done wrong. That, that's what makes us human, not this pretension that somehow we, we've got it all right. Uh-huh. He is Shemuel Klatskin. He is the Associate Rabbi of Chabad of Greater Dayton, Ohio, adjunct professor at Antioch University and senior editor of Curriculum at JLI. I will tweet out again his most excellent piece that he was referencing in our brutal election battle, Remember the Weapon of Redemption. Rabbi Klaskin, thanks so much for joining us. Appreciate your perspective. A real pleasure being here. You're listening to The Dan Proft Show on the Salem Radio Network. Welcome back to the show. Don't forget the bottom of next hour, as soon as the vice presidential debate ends, be taking your calls, get your reactions. 888-291-2222. That's 888-291-2222. And uh, a little entertainment news. Uh, well, 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 uh, Adam Silver decided to uh, come down from his home planet and sit down for an interview with ESPN's Rachel Nichols and uh, talking about next season. Already talking about next season. And listen to what Adam Silver had to say about uh, those messages that adorn NBA courts and the backs of the jerseys of NBA players. We're completely committed to standing for social justice, 
and racial equality. And that's been the case going back decades. It's part of the DNA of this league. How it gets manifested is something we're going to have to sit down with the players and discuss for next season. I would say in terms of the messages you see on our court, on the jerseys, this was an extraordinary moment in time mm-hmm. when we when we began the discussions with the players and what we all lived through this summer. My sense is there'll be somewhat a return to normalcy, that those messages, messages will largely be left to be delivered off the floor. And I understand those people who are saying, I'm, I'm on your side, mm-hmm. but I want to watch a basketball game. Uh, I, I guess that means he assumes Biden's going to win. Because if Trump wins, I'll be interested to see if that's still his position. But the, I understand uh, people say, uh, you know, I'm with you, but I just want to watch a basketball game. Uh, just fantastic tweet from mini AOC. Uh, you know, that little girl who did those does this impeccable AOC impersonation. She and her father have a Twitter account. If you're not following it, real mini AOC. You should follow that right after you follow DanProfShow.com, uh, at DanProfShow, uh, of course. <laughs> tweeting out on the uh, news that uh, game two of the NBA finals between, or do you even know, the Lakers and the Heat, 68%, uh, down 68% over game two last year of the NBA finals, the lowest game two audience in NBA's history, so long as they've had, uh, you know, Nielsen data on the topic. <laughs> so... Here's uh, Midi AOC's tweet. Speaking of social justice, you know, because as uh, that um, alien, uh, Adam Silver, said, they're uh, completely committed to it. Mini AOC tweeting, the NBA finally achieved equality. They have the same ratings as the WNBA. Zing. Wonderful. Uh, and I believe, if I'm remembering the, the data correctly, down 48% year over year is NBA viewership. Uh, now, uh, once he removes the messages and the uh, on the floors, on the backs of jerseys, then you have to uh, suspend LeBron James's Twitter account. And then you actually have to return the NBA, the actual NBA teams and the NBA players to playing something resembling basketball, which necessarily includes defense. This is the Dan Prof Show. This is the Dan Proft Show. The world is a complicated place. You need someone to expose the political fakers, fixers, and takers, and to cut through the mindless chatter and misdirection to help you make sense of it all. That person is Dan Proft, and this is the Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the show. Follow us at danproftshow.com on social media at Dan Proft Show. And uh, coming up at the bottom of the hour, we're taking your calls, 888-291-2222, 888-291-2222, getting your reactions and observations of the vice presidential debate, so grab a line. Uh, but uh, now we uh, want to have a little bit of a deep dive on all things COVID-related. To help us do that, we're pleased to be joined by Dr. John Bao, emergency room doctor and the chief medical officer and co-founder of Remote Health Solutions. John, thanks for joining us again. Appreciate it. You bet. Thanks for having me back. Uh, so yesterday, uh, the president's physician, Dr. Sean Connolly, said uh, this morning, the president's team of physicians met with him in the residence. He had a restful first night at home. Today, he reports no symptoms. Vital signs, physical exam remains stable. Ambulatory oxygen saturation level between 95 and 97 percent. Overall, he continues to do extremely well. Connolly concluded uh, from you know your 
experience, and you've treated a, a number of COVID-infected patients as well, um, is uh, is what Dr. Connolly reported particularly surprising to you? Should it be uh, so controversial as it's been, uh, his treatment and progression? No, you know, it's funny. I've talked about this a lot during this whole, whole pandemic and, and dealing with COVID-19, that it's amazing how treatment for and even having COVID-19 has become politicized. So when we look at the things that have been done for um, uh, President Trump, those are many of the same things that we do for most of our patients, with an exception that um, uh, he's on uh, one of the trial medications that maybe not general public have, but uh, many, many people are on. So it doesn't surprise me when we start hearing about how well he's doing and that's the course of this um, uh, disease process right now. Um, I wanted to to get your reaction to this. Um, we uh, the the show I do in Chicago uh, for the mornings. We uh, talked to a doctor out of Texas, West Texas, named Richard Bartlett, who has been treating patients for uh, a, you know medical practice for thirty years down there, and he is uh, using an inhaled steroid, often used by asthma patients, called budesonide, administered through a nebulizer that uh, delivers a medicated mist inhaled into the lungs along with uh, clarithromycin to combat secondary bacterial pneumonia. Um, And and he says, you know, this uh, early on treatment, as soon as a patient presents COVID symptoms, is more effective than dexamethasone because it's targeted the way dexamethasone isn't. And it's this uh, steroid treatment that is similar to what is being used in places like Japan and Taiwan, where they've seen a remarkably low incidence of both cases as well in, in particular deaths. Taiwan, I think, has reported seven deaths since August. It's just remarkable. He suggests that there, this is a, a steroid that's been around for a long time. It's FDA approved. There's no emergency use authorization needed. He's talking to uh, doctors and research agencies around the world about it now. But I mean, until uh, I happened upon him, I hadn't heard anything about this. And I wanted to get, you know, a second opinion, as it were, from an emergency room doc like yourself about this steroid and this treatment, whether you've heard anything about it and if this checks out with you. Yeah, so I have heard some brief about the use of budesonide um, with COVID patients and other inhaled steroids and the difference for that. But I, I will say this, I haven't read any literature yet about that. But the difference between uh, an inhaled steroid and an oral um, corticosteroid like dexamethasone, which is being used right now, sort of... Uh, more commonly is the fact that it is targeted towards the lungs. Now, the one downside for that maybe is the fact that the generalized inflammation that comes with COVID-19 that seems to be the big predictor of good or bad outcomes depending upon how um, how much inflammation you actually um, produce um, is generalized and most affected at our lungs. And so it makes sense to say, hey, this is um, nothing else. It's a great adjuvant to treatment. It may not be the only thing you do, and it sounds like um, Dr. Bartlett is not using clarithromycin, which is a common antibiotic, and it's something that we've had around for a long time. The same thing with the budesonide. These are, these are medications that we've had for a long time. We know their side effects, and we know that they're pretty minimal because we use them with patients who already have compromising immune systems or have respiratory issues to start with. So when we start saying, can we use these medications in patients with COVID-19 what are the risks? What are the benefits? What are the side effects? What do we need to be worried about? Our risk assessment really slides down a long way because we, we already know these medications. Like you said, they're FDA approved. They've been around for a long time and they're, they're available at any local pharmacy and they're free. Well, they're readily available. And he's, he's saying, you know, he is saying that there have been many, many patients in COVID infections in West Texas that he's treated with this without, uh, you know, negative consequence. And I just, I, I just wonder how something like that can happen 
and uh, you know everything is focused on a vaccine, and I understand that. But but in the meantime, over the course of the last six months, we have talked from the outset actually about therapeutics uh, as a medium term. Uh, way to effectively deal with infections and to to get people back to health, get people through this. And and something like this, just as it took forever for somebody to suggest dexamethasone, even though that had been around for a long time, or the are the arguments about hydroxychloroquine, even though that had been around for a long time. Uh, why does this take so long to bubble up to sort of stamp of approval from actual practitioners in the space, not to mention the public health professionals that hold the fancy titles? Well, I think there's a couple of things. Like I mentioned already, unfortunately, a lot of treatments for COVID-19, um, for the infectious powers COVID-2, have, been, have become politicized. And, and it's been a real frustration for me as a practitioner. I, you know, I take care of COVID-19 patients very, very regularly in the, in the emergency department, both those who are... Um, uh, you know, acutely ill and those who are asymptomatic and, and every range in between. And it has become sort of a politicized issue about what we use for treatment of um, uh, this, this disease when in a normal situation there's a, there's a spectrum of options for most diseases and there may be a gold standard and there may not be. There may be a, a list of suggestions or there might be sort of anecdotal things that we all do and it's common. In this situation, because of this sort of heightened political situation around COVID-19, um, uh, the, um, the having the disease and the treating of the disease, I think people are either viewed as being sort of on the fringe or they're afraid to be able to step out. And so it sits here in sort of two different camps, unfortunately. But I think that what we're going to see, and unfortunately, I think it's going to take more time, we're going to see that individuals who are having success um, are, are going to come out as they treat more patients. And it may not always be with the same thing. And it may be different for individuals, as we know, because everybody responds to medications differently. And it also might be geographically different. And it surely will also be ethnically different as, as we look at some of the increased risk factors within different um, uh, minority groups or within different um, uh, socioeconomic groups. What is it that we are able to treat and what are they able to afford? And, and how, how can we bring treatments to the, the, mo- the most people the easiest way, and and what are those treatments, and how effective are they? Mm -hmm. And uh, I just want to go back to something, too, for emphasis. He talked about, uh, uh, this Dr. Bartlett, talked about uh, what they've done in Taiwan and Japan, early intervention, and he suggests we've had the wrong strategy from the beginning at the sort of the policymaking level nationally, which is um, to, you know, sort of await and see, and then as things progress, then you go with more drastic intervention. So, you know, first back six months ago, it was, you know, if if you're, the symptoms are not too severe, then take some aspirin and go home. And if they get more severe, then come in and we'll put you on a ventilator. And uh, and now it's it's better than that, obviously, with these other therapeutics from Desivir and dexamethasone and so forth. But still, he, he feels like we have a strategy of wait till the infection progresses, whereas as soon as the symptoms manifest themselves in places like Japan and Taiwan, they are interceding. Yeah, you know, that's it's interesting. Once again, even in this country, there's two camps, you know, when we look at this. And friends of mine that uh, were right in the, you know, the hotbed of New York City during the, the most heightened aspect of the pandemic, um, uh, their advice to me um, before we started seeing big numbers here were if it looks like COVID, if it acts like COVID, treat it like COVID, treat it early. And, and they're the ones that uh, I rely upon as far as my medical sort of early direction in this. 
because that's what they're doing. They're saying, you know, everybody gets steroids. Everybody, because what we really want to do is we want to reduce that inflammation that uh, COVID-19 is so infamous for. And so you're right, sort of the general um, regulations or recommendations from, from medical, you know, guidance in the country has been that we don't use steroids, dexamethasone, especially until they are moderate or severe in nature, until they're requiring oxygen um, uh, to be able to maintain their oxygen saturations at appropriate level. But I think that there is still two camps, and I think we're going to see that uh, over the or the next little while, we're probably going to get more and more individuals who are willing to start patients on early steroids or other adjuvant treatments. And, and I think that what we see with that is something that's not out of the norm for um, normal situations. If, if I have an asthma patient or a COPD patient coming to my ER and they're having difficulty um, breathing and, we, and we, even if we fix them, you know, we, we do some treatment and therapy in the emergency department, they're going to go home. They almost always will go home with a steroid to be able to reduce that inflammation so that they can breathe better later and have improved outcomes on a short and long-term basis. He is Dr. John Bao, emergency room physician and chief medical officer and co-founder of Remote Health Solutions. Dr. Bao, thanks for joining us again. Appreciate it. Thank you, Dan. Appreciate it. Take care. Exposing political fakers, fixers, and takers. He's Dan Proft, and this is The Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the show. Uh, don't forget, uh, coming up after the upcoming break, the phone lines are open. 888-291-2222. 888-291-2222. Give us a call with your impressions of the vice presidential debate. How did Mike Pence and Reparation H do in their square off? How does it set up for the next presidential debate? Uh, and if you don't do impressions because your field is or your training is in the field of psychiatry, I understand. Then just give us your viewpoints. How about that? Uh, I wanted to uh, tackle this uh, Neil Ferguson piece in Bloomberg about uh, the craving for normalcy and whether or not that craving will spell the end of the Trump presidency. And this is, again, the Neil Ferguson, same name, not the Imperial College of London, Neil Ferguson, with his phony baloney end of the world modeling for pandemics. Uh, This is the Neil Ferguson from the Hoover Institution uh, and historian and um, written a number of good books. I would recommend The Great Disintegration as perhaps his best and most uh, most salient for the, the state of uh, America's republic. But uh, here's what uh, Ferguson writes in making a comparison that other historians have made between the 1920 election and the 2020 presidential election uh, and the run-up to both. I'm thinking about uh, the 1920 election. You had the Red Scare you had the Spanish influenza of 1918-1919. You had uh, coming out of World War One. You had a severe recession that had begun in January of that year. And uh, what was the what was the 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 uh, pitch? The pitch by uh, Harding was a return to normalcy, right? And so that's isn't that in part the pitch to from Joe Biden at present? He uh, goes on to say, does Neil Ferguson, I always said the half-life of populism was short. Donald Trump is a classic populist, offered disgruntled voters, disgruntled voters a heady cocktail of patriotism, uh, excuse me, 
protectionism, nativism, easy money, isolation, anti-elitism. I don't quite agree with that characterization, that those specific vocabulary words, but you get his point. Uh, when populists do get elected, they almost never deliver on all they have promised to their supporters and are often exposed as even more corrupt than the people they ran against. Well, that certainly, that parallel doesn't hold up at all, does it? Because, as I've said, and has been said by others, including Rusty Reno at First Things, who is hardly a Trump apologist, uh, according to the standard of did you do or attempt to do and were thwarted everything you promised you would do once in office, everything you said you would do as a candidate. And by that score, President Trump is the most honest president in my lifetime. I mean, he really is. And uh, in terms of corruption, with each passing day, we find out the Obama administration and the senior level officials there who were involved in the failed coup attempt are more corrupt. We find out past post, their corruption continues to compound where President Trump's is mainly things that were brought to the table from his life as a uh, real estate developer and tabloid centerfold. But uh, uh, Ferguson goes through the state of affairs and why he thinks how he shakes out, shakes out for him. He thinks Trump doesn't win reelection. If Jimmy Carter couldn't get a second term after the small recession of January to July 1980, if H.W. Bush couldn't get one after the comparably minor recession of July 90 to March 91, how on earth could Donald Trump get a second term after the disaster that has befallen the U.S. this year? Well, with due respect to the historian, those are not analogous presidencies and analogous times. I mean, there are many variables that turn, turn out to be determinative. Uh, Ross Perot, for example, with respect to H.W. Bush, I mean, Jimmy Carter uh, yeah, small recession, but uh, the term stagflation was invented to describe the malaise of the Carter administration. It's much bigger than just uh, quarters, a couple of quarters, consecutive quarters of negative growth, isn't it? In addition to that, the disaster that has befallen the U.S. this year, well, uh, the in the previous examples, those were based on the decisions made by the president's. George H.W. Bush to go back on his no new taxes pledge. Jimmy Carter, I mean, his just general policy vision. President Trump did something he didn't want to do, but on the advice of the so-called experts, he did, which is to advocate for the shutdown of the U.S. economy. Where was the performance of the economy under Trump's policies, generally speaking, pre-pandemic? And how much blame do you ascribe President Trump for for the decisions that were made that were roundly supported? frankly, continue to be supported long after he stopped supporting them, the lockdown policy specifically, if you want to make the recession comparisons. So I, I just don't find that to be a very compelling argument. And it's frankly a surprisingly feeble one coming from an intellect like Ferguson. Uh, he looks at the final phases of the of more recent campaigns, particularly 2016, and reminds us that there was a stream of negative news about Clinton through October, right up until Election Day with the, you know, a week before Comey announcing the relook at her emails, newly discovered, that ate away at her lead. State polls seriously underestimated Trump's support in some of the Rust Belt states he ultimately won, Michigan, Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, and third-party candidates took 6% of the vote. He writes, maybe there's a secret stash of toxic opposition research waiting to be unleashed against Biden this month, but I doubt it. And what we're getting right now is a relentless stream of negative news flow about Trump. Well, uh, point of order, we were getting a pretty good stream of negative news flow uh, against Trump in 2016 as well, like the entire campaign. Yes, it was joined with some on Hillary in the closing weeks, but still vastly outweighed by the negative news coverage of Trump. And in point of fact, it was the St. Louis debate 
that started to turn things around. Now, Joe Biden is Joe Biden is as much of a lightning rod as Hillary Clinton is as so passionately disliked as Hillary Clinton. No, probably not. But he's got other fundamental issues, too, like competence that persists despite him being able to marshal his way through that first debate. He's got two more to go. Uh, now, to Ferguson's credit, he does go through nine other factors that suggest that he may be wrong. What could make me wish I'd stuck to my contrarian position of four years ago? And he talks about uh, some of the things, well, all the things we've talked about, Republicans who aren't willing to report their true opinions to pollsters. How much does law and order and the culture wars, what we've seen play out on the streets of America, as well as in corporate boardrooms and in every other aspect of people's lives, the leftist orthodoxy, the so-called cancel culture, which is, as I described more accurately, a purge. How much does that impact the vacancy in the Supreme Court, the the uh, ACB confirmation hearings, which, which begin on Monday? How well Trump is doing with Latino voters in swing states, notably in Florida, where he's running uh, a good 28 points ahead of where he was in 2016. Uh, as we've talked about in the show, the voter registration game where Republicans ground game has really produced results compared to the ground game Joe Biden isn't running. And so the voter registration pickups in a lot of these swing states that we discussed last week, Arizona, North Carolina, Florida, Pennsylvania, and uh, the continued bounce back of the economy, despite the shutdowns of some big cities and some big states that persist. You also have some big states reopening up in total, like Florida. And the other thing I would say, just in summary, and I wish we could get more had more time to get into this, but we're going to begin to take your calls right after the break. 888-291-2222 is a reminder. Grab a line is this understanding maybe maybe people are underestimating the American public's understanding is that there is no, quote unquote, return to normalcy, that whether Trump wins reelection or Biden wins, that normalcy is a fraud. The prospect of normalcy, that is a lie. That is a bit of ledger domain from pundits and politicos and politicians and uh, that we have a lot of abnormality to go through regardless of the outcome of this election. This is Dan Profshow.com. Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show. The phone lines are open. The debate uh, between Vice President Pence and Senator Kamala Harris has just concluded. Give us a call, 888-291-2222, 888-291-2222, and uh, give us your impressions of the debate, your reaction from the respective performances, and um, who you think advanced the flag for their ticket, uh, more so, Pence or Kamala Harris. Uh, Harris, of course, the Harris-Biden ticket, Pence, the Trump-Pence ticket. Uh, Just a couple of observations. Um, Megan McArdle uh, over at um, Wash Post, uh, and uh, she tweeted out something just very very simple and I think understated, uh, elegant in its understatement. Uh, Kamala Harris is 
dot, 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 not a great debater. Well, here's the good news. Um, she's a better debater than she was a prosecutor or is a senator. But, yeah, it's pretty clear that, uh, once again, the unflappable Mike Pence ran circles around a, a distinguished senator. He did it four years ago against Tim Kaine. In my mind, I, I don't know what uh, you saw, and I'm sure the left will do their best to spin the matter positively for Kamala. But that's what I saw this evening. Mike Pence, unflappable. Here's the thing, too, particularly on the most difficult topic for the administration, the topic that uh, the Harris-Biden team is counting on to put them across the finish line, which is COVID and the COVID response. Trump was uh, Trump. Um, In contrast to Trump, frankly, if we're being honest, Pence was uh, complete in his responses, like full sentence format. He was measured. He was substantive and he was detailed. And interestingly, for as much as people thought Kamala Harris, given her personality, may come out uh, very much like the Kamala Harris you saw during the Kavanaugh hearing and try to use her alleged uh, prosecutor skills to put uh, Pence on the defensive, that she would be the one uh, offering the zingers. Well, that's not actually how it worked out in practice, did it? The reality is when you look at the Biden plan, it reads an awful lot like what President Trump and I and our task force have been doing every step of the way. I mean, quite frankly, when I look at their plan that talks about advancing testing, creating new PPE, developing a vaccine, um, it looks a little bit like plagiarism, which is something Joe Biden knows a little bit about. Nice deadpan. Zing. (laughs) Hello. Uh, Here's the key point that Pence was speaking to and that Zinger was in furtherance of. Biden and Harris parrot the parts of what Trump did that worked, that they supported at the time, and they ignore what Trump did that worked, that Biden opposed at the time, don't they? So shutting down the economy, uh, the, the, the infrastructure they needed to build around testing, uh, the vaccine development, Operation Warp Speed, the securing uh, personal protective equipment, the Uh, Use of the Defense Authorization Act to get uh, ventilators produced when ventilators were all the rage and and all the need, according to governors. And remember, the plaudits that the Trump administration earned from Democrat socialist governors like Murphy in New Jersey and like Cuomo in New York and like Newsom in California. And they oppose or really gloss over those things that they oppose that work, that were important, the decision That Trump made, as Mike Pence pointed out, again, with specificity, the specifics important. It drives home the the import. It has greater impact when we had five cases and they were travelers from China back to America. That's when Trump made the decision to close the borders to Chinese travelers. And that was a decision that was treated and called xenophobic, treated as and called by uh, Joe Biden and others on the left uh, as an example of Trump's xenophobia. That whole exchange on COVID, uh, not only did Pence neutralize the Biden line of attack, uh, he decimated it. And uh, to me, you know, that first half hour where that was really the issue that was mainly discussed, that was a virtuoso performance by Pence. It had Kamala Harris bat on her uh, hind legs and 
really, I think the rest of the debate more or less proceeded in that format to varying degrees. But it was key that uh, Pence got out of the box on the issue. You knew they'd start with COVID like he did. All right, stay tuned. Uh, coming back, we're going to take your calls. There's my first blush reaction. 888-291-2222. Back right after this. Fake news. He's always got the real story. This is the Dan Proft Show. You are fake news. Welcome back to the Dan Proft Show. Taking your calls, getting uh, postmortem on the vice presidential debate just concluded uh, 15 minutes ago. 888 888-291-2222. 888-291-2222. 22, I gave you uh, my first blush reaction to uh, the beginning of the debate, the issue that they finally got to after we were lectured about uh, the debate and civility and the format and Susan Page's CV and everything else for about the first five minutes uh, before we finally got to it, treated like kindergartners, as is the want of the D.C. press corps. COVID was the first topic. Mike Pence delivered a wonderful response to both the very surface skimming lines of attack from Kamala Harris. Basically, Kamala Harris is nothing more than one of those seat fillers you see on Pick a Sunday talk show. It is all on every topic. It is all the uh, allegations you've heard against Trump and Biden and this administration for the last three and a half years, rinsed and repeated. Uh, It includes many lies or half-truths that have been dispatched, but they don't care. Let me give you an example. She started out, did Kamala Harris, saying the President of the United States called COVID a hoax. That never happened. That is untrue. Don't believe me. The Associated Press felt compelled earlier this week to do a fact-check on Joe Biden saying that's what the President said and said, did the Associated Press, that's not true. Of course it's not true. The man uh, moved to advocate for the shutdown of the substantial shutdown of the U.S. economy. But he thought it was a hoax. Obviously not. Not something he wanted to do, something he was advised to do by the Fauci's and the Berks of the world and reluctantly did, as he's explained innumerable times. That's a good indication of sort of how the debate went generally. Kamala Harris repeating one of the stock lines from the punditocracy and Mike Pence giving a detailed, contextual, thoughtful, considerate response that made her look foolish because, frankly, uh, her performance, what she had to offer, was largely foolish. Again, one eight eight two two. Excuse me, one eight eight two nine one twenty two twenty two. Let's start with uh, Grant in Rockford, Illinois. Hey Dan, great show, great analysis. Thank I you. just want to start off by saying uh, they took science and climate change off the website okay just that issue number one uh number two she came off robotic and dumb and uh, my conclusion she might be a more unlikable person than hillary clinton um and that's 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 an impressive feat yeah actually you know, I, I and 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 I'm I happy to get your opinion, uh, Grant. But I'd yeah. like I'd also like to hear from women on this too. The the moments where she said, "Mr. Vice President, I'm speaking now," 
did you did, did you receive that as her just being assertive and holding her own, or did it come across as a little petulant? Because it's not like Mike Pence is an overly assertive or bombastic guy. I, I just I thought it was a little snippy, but maybe I'm just a chauvinist pig. I don't know. Well, uh, from one chauvinist to another, no. Um, <laughs> yeah, okay. I, I, I think that Mike Pence, the man who will only have dinner alone with his wife, um, I, I don't think I, I think she was petulant. Yes, that, <laughs> that that's that's a very that's that's a very good word. I would say that Pence at the end he came off stable, strong, smart, and he's believable. I mean, he 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 just did facts from one to the other. It, it was. <laughs> She, she, like you said, it was it was every single Sunday morning platform. Thanks for the call, Grant. Appreciate it. Uh, let's go to Chris in downtown Chicago. Hey, Dan, uh, Chris from the Gold Coast. You know, I, I think that we have a couple of things happening here. I think, number one, he came out really strong, really um, quiet and calm and, and set a tone that was very, you know, vice presidential, you know, and I think he did a great job. I think she seemed at times a little uh, nervous, perhaps, or, you know, um, I mean, she's a prosecutor. Obviously, she's done a lot of a lot of uh, these types of things, but uh, it, it was a little weaker on that aspect. And then I think that and, and you know, the, why, by the way, you know, why I think it's weaker. Uh, just uh, this was the problem she had in the primary, too. So don't make this about conservatives. Why did she not make it to the Iowa caucus, despite all of these institutional advantages she, she had and the financial support that she received going into this, the prospect that she would be one of the front runners? Why did she not make it to the first election to the Iowa caucus? Well, I. Yeah, I would say because because she's a cipher because she's a cipher. She's all over the place. She doesn't know these things particularly well. I don't know if she's not interested in them or what the issue is, but she comes across as a cipher. I mean, if you if you want my opinion, I think honestly she is a complete sycophant and a pilot fish. And she basically (laughs) will say whatever she wants to say that she thinks is going to advance her career. I mean, I think you saw that with her legal career, right? I mean, she moves her way up the ladder in a variety of ways that, you know, you might want, not want to talk about on the radio. But the point is that, that you know, she's willing to say and do anything that advances her situation. And, you know, I think we saw that throughout the night. I, th- I think you saw her being, you know, a little bit nervous and a little bit weak in the middle. And then I think she, you know, they both got more comfortable and more strong at the end. Uh, and they, they both did a better job, you know, and I'm not saying that she didn't. She did. Um, but so did he. And I think that his, his focus on facts, his calmness, um, he clearly has prepped, you know, quite a bit for this one. I mean, they knew there yeah. was a one and done situation. Yeah. And so, you know, I think they, you know, they both did their best job for a one shot deal. Thanks for the call, Chris. Appreciate it. Dan in Salem, Wisconsin. Uh, Dan, she did not say that she is a racist herself because she is. Okay. Uh, well, you mean like and, when, when she accused President Trump of, quote unquote, packing the court with white people? I mean, that's essentially what she said, wasn't it? Exactly. <laughs> it's bizarre. Yeah, don't, that, don't worry, don't worry about she, me packing the court. You pack the court with white people. What? Uh, bizarre. Oh, and she even called her running mate a racist. 
Do you remember? Yeah, back in the primary. Yes, I do. Thanks for the call, Dan. Appreciate it. We're up against it. But when we come back, we'll uh, take more of your calls. I, 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 uh, we've got some people that want to talk about the moderator, too, Susan Page. And I think it's worth talking about her uh, and the, the way that debate was structured as well. 888-291-2222. We're taking your calls for the next hour, getting your reactions to the recently concluded vice presidential debate. We'll be right back. Grab a good seat and sharpen your pencils. Class is in session with Professor Dan Proft and the Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the Dan Proft Show, taking your calls in reaction to the vice presidential debate in which, uh, as he did in 2016, uh, then vice presidential candidate, now Vice President Pence, dispatched a media-inflated U.S. senator. That's what I saw happen tonight. What did you see? Nick in Des Moines, you're on Chicago's Morning or Chicago's Morning Answer, my other show. You're on the Dan Prof Show, which is also me. Sorry. Go ahead, Nick. Good to talk to you. Um, I agree with Rich, Rich Lowry and what he said afterwards, that Trump should just let Pence do the next debate. To which David Bonson replied, and I also kind of agree, that why stop there? Why stop with... <laughs> to the next two debates? Yeah. No, like being president, oh, maybe. Oh, okay. But, well, yeah. Yeah. Well, that was, and that was actually sort of a topic, too, which was a, a little weird. I thought Pence was smart to use his time to go back to uh, some of the uh, uh, urban mythology that uh, Kamala Harris was peddling on COVID and uh, other matters. Uh, but, y- yeah, um, I, look— uh, Trump has his style and his appeal. That's why he's got the president before his name. But in this format, in this time, uh, with the issues that need to be explicated, uh, Pence, I think, provides a nice bridge from what occurred last week to the next presidential debate. And and hopefully Trump will at least take some. He's not going to turn into Mike Pence. That's not going to happen. We know that. But at least take some pointers for how Pence approached uh, the discussions on important topics that he needs to do better on, like COVID. I completely agree. Yeah. Thanks no. for the call, Nick. Appreciate it. Uh, yeah, we got time. Verlon on the south side of Chicago. I take issue with the moderator and how she conducted time. Yeah. Uh, she, uh, she, she literally gave Kamala Harris more time to talk than Mike Pence. Just like the, the question that she asked about China and asked her a follow-up question, basically giving her four to five minutes and only let Pence responds for two minutes. Pence had to fight for every bit of time he got to talk. And she, uh, you could see that she clearly was trying to put Kamala Harris in position where she got the last word or, well, he, gotcha, or tried to give her a gotcha moment. Well, here, here's the moderator. Was yeah. Fighting. Here's what I would say about Susan Page. Number one, most of the questions started from the premises of the left, including many premises that were untrue. You know, if all these debates are settled, Susan, then why even ask the question? Well, I even have a debate for that matter. That was annoying. Also annoying uh, that saying uninterrupted after every here's your chance to answer. Yeah, we get it. There were interruptions last week. The only person who interrupted a debate more than Donald Trump did last week was Susan Page tonight. It was annoying, as was her proctor like clock watching. Uh, you know, by the time she got done with all of that, all of the history, the, the, the formatics, plus her long winded questions, Every 10 minutes you hear her from the candidates for about four of those 10 minutes. So I, I agree with you. I, I didn't like it. 
Thanks for the call, Verlon. It was an overreaction to last week's debate. The personalities are completely different and the dynamics different. So, yeah, I'm, I'm glad Mike Pence was able to work around Susan Page as well. Actually, he did a nice job, all things considered, on that score, too. All right, coming up, uh, top of the hour, we'll take more of your calls, 888-291-2222. We'll also be joined by Matt Mayer to talk about uh, how the Midwest looks come November 3rd. Exposing political fakers, fixers, and takers. He's Dan Prof, and this is The Dan Prof Show. The world is a complicated place. You need someone to expose the political fakers, fixers, and takers and to cut through the mindless chatter and misdirection to help you make sense of it all. That person is Dan Proft. And this is The Dan Proft Show. Welcome back. Uh, this is The Dan Prof Show. The phone number, 888-291-2222. Taking your calls, getting reactions for the next hour to the recently completed vice presidential debate. Uh, and um, uh, just uh, we, we talked a, a bit about uh, Pence's COVID response in that interplay in the first 15 minutes or so of the debate. Um, I thought this was a nice device that Pence used in response to this idea of Biden and Harris playing Monday morning quarterback. Uh, as I said la- uh, last hour, this hey, we uh, are going to fo- we're going to ignore the things uh, upon which we agree, like the lockdowns that led to the unemployment and the job uh, that, that led to, uh, well, the job loss, as well as the business closures that she prattled on about as if Biden and the entire left wasn't supportive of that, as well as continuing to do it even after Trump is not supportive of it anymore, opening up and learning to live with and so forth, the distinction between the two parties now. Uh, But they pretend. And then they gloss over those things that did work that Trump did, with which they disagreed at the time, for example, closing the borders to Chinese travelers after the first few cases that were identified. Um, Pence also went back in time, which is nice to have institutional memory and to be facile with it, to offer some people consideration on what Joe Biden did in a similar circumstance when he was vice president, part of the Obama administration. Uh, what, what exactly is the Biden record in combating pandemics? You know, the reality is when you talk about about failure in this administration, We actually do know what failure looks like in a pandemic. It was 2009. The swine flu arrived in the United States. Thankfully, it was ended up not being as lethal as the coronavirus. But before the end of the year, when Joe Biden was vice president of the United States, not seven and a half million people contracted the swine flu. Sixty million Americans contracted the swine flu. If the swine flu had been as lethal as the coronavirus in 2009, when Joe Biden was vice president, we would have lost two million American lives. Mm. It was moments like that where I think uh, Pence really put uh, Kamala back on her heels. And, uh, you know, I always like to look at how the left is responding to the debates to see how confident they are with respect to the performance of their preferred candidate. So. Clinton Foundation donor zero, George Stephanopoulos, uh, in his roundtable discussion on ABC right after the debate just a few minutes back. That to you, because obviously Mike Pence uh, is a former television commentator, does have a very calm demeanor. But I think a lot of people were noticing some mansplaining going on tonight. 
<laughs> is that what you're noticing? Mansplaining. Um, what he's really saying is what a lot of people notice is that Mike Pence walloped Kamala Harris on the merits. That's what they, that's what they noticed. And so now it's time for us to retreat to inventions around our trusty isms for cover. Yeah, 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 the merits. But what the real takeaway is that Mike Pence is some sort of sexist. Hmm. Okay. Before we uh, are joined by our friend Matt Mayer, whose uh, Twitter handle is Ohio Matt, and we'll talk a little bit about uh, how this may play in the Midwest and the Rust Belt. Uh, Andrew in Twinsburg, Ohio, you're on the Dan Prof Show. Yeah, thanks, Dan. Yeah, uh, Pence definitely did good tonight. But when Kamala Harris starts off with a lie, her first sentence uh, that she said that Trump's uh, this was the greatest failure of any presidential administration in history. I just started cracking up because uh, when Woodrow Wilson was president, 675,000 people died of the Spanish flu, and there's a only 103 million people in the country. This is just crazy. And then when she said uh, that Trump forfeited the right for reelection on COVID-19 deaths, I couldn't believe she said that. Yeah, yeah. Thanks for the call, Andrew. And I think Pence was ready and waiting for the overheated rhetoric, which came. And uh, then he's, you know, the silver surfer. He just slides, ice, ices over it and slides right through it. And that's what I, he thinks he, that's what I think he did. And now I've also been, feel myself as a bit of a comic book geek. Uh, for more on the topic, we're pleased to be joined by Matt Mayer, president at OpportunityOhio.org, contributor to Spectator USA. Matt, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Hey, thanks for having me. Well, um, I don't know. I'm certainly in higher spirits after tonight's debate than I was after the presidential debate last week. Yeah, look, I think Mike Pence crushed Kamala Harris. I mean, on the on the substance, on the style. Um, But before we get to that, I don't know about you, Dan, but I have to tell you, these moderators are driving me crazy. I mean, between the biased kinds of questions that, that they asked Trump and Pence and the softballs they asked uh, Biden and Harris between. Thank you, Matt Mayer. Thank you, Matt Mayer. Thank you, Matt Mayer. Thank you, Matt Mayer. How about that? Yeah, 52 exactly. times after. Hey, here's the here's the here's the rule. Uh, if I say thank you, then you complete your sentence and we move on. You don't have to say it every second as Mike Pence is trying to get four more words out. It's so annoying. It, and it's, it's just also like the, the failure to follow up on anything that's going to hurt the Democrats, right? This happened in the first debate with Trump and, and Biden. And it, again, tonight, I mean, how Harris could get away, the fact that Mike Pence had to ask the question on packing the Supreme Court and how Susan yes. Page let her not answer it. Like, I, I just, this whole artificiality of, oh, sorry, we have to move on to the next topic. It's funny that always seems to save the Democrat from having to answer a tough question. Well, I, I uh, noted this on my morning show in Chicago today because I know something about it, that uh, I knew Susan Page was not qualified to be a debate moderator, despite being the Washington bureau chief for USA Today, because she was the former editor in chief of the Daily Northwestern at Northwestern University, where I attended. So I knew that was a disqualifying credential on her CV. Uh, but nonetheless, they push forward. Look, um, she, she you know, she sort of did something at like three quarters of the way through where she's like, look, I'm just here to enforce the rules the campaign has agreed on. And that's fine. I get it. You know, 
Um, but And so part of it is the rules the campaigns agreed on were ridiculous. You don't need to say you'll have a minute, you'll have two minutes, uninterrupted, uninterrupted. Yeah, we got it. There were Every disruptions. Time. Every time I know. There were, right, there were like, disruptions last Lord. week. Right? I, we got it. Yeah, I got it. Okay, we're not children. Let them go at it. Let them exactly. for crime sake, right? Because I think the American public is going to get more out of the candidates pressing each other to answer a question than these these debate moderators that that get, oh sorry it's it's been nine and a half minutes we're moving on to the next topic but at any rate when you know look when you get to it yeah. like, Kamala Harris showed tonight why she failed so miserably in the Democrat primaries she is just not likable I mean the the condescension that just oozes out of her the abrasiveness the I- I'm speaking I- I'm speaking like yeah. what, what what are you like some some you know teacher who has an inflated ego that has to yell at their students constantly. I mean, who are you? Like, get over yourself already. And that that's why she failed miserably in the, the Democratic primary. And I think, though most vice presidential debates don't impact the election, I think some Americans will will get the either watched it or they'll get the highlights tomorrow. And it'll the, the, that likability factor will cause problems for Joe Biden because of his age and fragility. And it will make people go, do I really want her in backup versus Pence, who was calm, assuring, detailed, right? The kind of person you want sitting in the vice presidency. Yeah, it may. Right. It may throw some people into a bit of confusion. You know, I'd be fine with Pence, but I don't like Trump. I'd be fine with Biden, but I don't like Kamala. Uh, well, <laughs> that's not your choice. Um, I think that's right. I think that uh, people are going to say. You know, that Pen- I may not agree with Pence and everything, so on and so forth, but he's a steady hand. Uh, yeah, they were, it was complete thoughts. Uh, it, it was explanatory in nature, which a debate should be. And, um, uh, you know, uh, I, I, I think they come away saying uh, if uh, Trump can build on this performance next week, that, um, yeah, maybe that uh, Harris-Biden team, uh, and I do say it in the proper order, isn't ready for, for the Oval Office. Yeah, like let's let's hope uh, of the, whoever watched the debate tonight. Let's hope to God one person watched it and took notes. Donald Trump. Yeah. If he can simply do what Mike Pence did, to grasp the details, the defense of the record, right, the avoiding the 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 pettiness and those kinds of things, the the scowling of the thing that he did in the first debate, right, he will clean Joe Biden's clock. But he just has got to just follow. The, the, the pathway that Biden has laid down because it was a good, good pathway. And let let Biden be the one who refuses to answer questions. Let Biden be the one that just talks on and he'll stumble over his own words. Right. But but stick to the defense of what you did and don't get so caught up in scoring little zingers against Hunter Biden and all that kind of stuff. Leave that for people like you or me to take care of. Right. But but focus on what Pence did tonight. And I think Trump can win the second debate. And everyone has to keep in mind Ronald Reagan's first debate in 1904 was a disaster. He came back and crushed it in the second debate and went on to win the largest uh, election victory in modern history, right? Uh, That's a good institutional knowledge, good historical perspective, just like Pence offered tonight. He is Matt Mayer, president of OpportunityOhio.org, contributor to Spectator USA as well. Matt, thanks for joining us tonight. Appreciate it. The real story. This is the Dan Prof Show. You are fake news.
Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show. Phone lines open, 888-291-2222. want to hear what uh, you all have to say about uh, the debate just uh, completed about an hour ago. Continue to take your calls for the rest of this hour. Get your perspectives on Kamala Harris's performance, Mike Pence's performance, Susan Page, the moderator's performance, as well as what you think the implications are uh, for the next uh, the final uh, three and a half weeks of the campaign, but even more so how you think this may inform the next presidential debate on October 15th. Does this change the trajectory of the race at all? Or even if you agree with me that Mike Pence did very well, that he really, and as Matt Mayer, uh, who we were speaking with before the break, said that he crushed Kamala Harris, even if you agree with that statement, do you think it changes the race? Does it get anybody to reconsider their position of support for Harris Biden? Or is this just a, a nice moment, uh, a, an instruction video for President Trump, but it's all still going to turn on what happens in those final two debates and whatever comes that may over the last three and a half weeks? Let's take a few more calls. Jan, you're on the Dan Prof Show. Hey, thank you very much. Uh, based on your last questions, uh, I think uh, Pence was a voice of reason. Mm-hmm. He was very calm and very reassuring. I think Kamala was very condescending, as your guest said earlier, and that she never could defend any of her record. And I just, I find her to be offensive. You know, I, of course, I'm a Trump supporter, so, you know, that kind of answers that question, but yeah. Do you, now, did, how did you react to Trump's performance last week? Did that uh, bother you at all, or did you did you? Like well, it? I I I thought he could have you know been quiet a lot more. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I I think that based on Chris Wallace's questions and the way he moderated, uh, he didn't give Trump a chance to say anything of any substance. So you know he had to he had to interrupt to get him to do it. Now, could he have done it in a better way? Yes, but I think that, uh, you know, Biden's his only substance last week, you know, in the last debate was when he spoke directly to the camera when he did his canned words. Right. So, thanks, you know, for, but, thanks for the call, Jan. Appreciate it. Yeah, I, I think that the instructional video for Trump with the understanding that Trump is still going to be Trump, you're not going to change his personality. Nobody's trying to. But you can, you know, be the best iteration of yourself in the context of a debate by maybe taking a few pointers. One of those is if you're not going to attack the premise of the moderator's question when it's invariably coming from the left or of uh, audience members question, because remember, the next presidential debate is a town hall format. So it will be Steve Scully, the moderator, sort of facilitating questions from the audience online or people in that are there physically or some combination of the two. Um, then you need to do what Mike Pence did, which is, uh, okay, I I hear what you say. I'm not going to accept the premise, but I'm not going to spend a lot of time debating you about the premise of your question. What I'm going to do instead is give you my perspective on this issue and perhaps turn it back on Kamala Harris to answer a question the way he did, for example, with the question about Amy Coney Barrett and whether or not it was appropriate for the president to nominate a a justice to fill the vacancy left by the passing of a justice, Ruth Bader Ginsburg, of course, rather than, you know, uh, again, uh, have any interplay with the moderator. Pence just 
uh, took the opportunity to extol the virtues of the selection of Amy Coney Barrett, appropriately so, to turn it back on Kamala Harris to say, hopefully you won't behave in the way that you and your colleagues did, the Borscht way you and your colleagues did the Kavanaugh hearing. Hopefully you won't engage in the sort of anti-Catholic bigotry that we saw in Amy Coney Barrett's Seventh Circuit confirmation hearing. Oh, and by the way, since we're on the topic, uh, what's your position on court packing? Because we couldn't get an answer from Joe Biden, and I'd like an answer from you. And then you had Kamala Harris bobbing and weaving, dodging that question. And Mike Pence ended the segment saying what? Okay, there you've heard it. I asked three times what her position was on packing the Supreme Court because they don't like the selections by this president, the legitimate selections by this president, because they lost an election. They lost control of making those selections. And you didn't get an answer from Kamala Harris. He dominated that segment because of the way he chose to prosecute the question that was posed to him. That, that should be an instructional video for President Trump, as far as I'm concerned. Uh, Michael on the south side of Chicago. Dan, good evening. How's it going? Good. Excellent. I thought uh, Mike Pence performed well, I think, but I think he missed a golden opportunity. Uh, when the question about the Brianna Taylor case came up, he should have pointed out that AG was black. Um, yeah, okay. Um, thanks for the call, Michael. Uh, look, I, I actually liked what he did there when he said uh, we was respectful about the uh, Breonna Taylor, and it, it's unfortunate that she was killed in that incident, and and any loss of innocent life is something that we mourn. Was said effectively the words Pence said, and then sort of turning it back on Kamala, making it a political, uh, make exposing her for making it political, saying you know it's a remarkable thing for an officer of the court to. Uh, openly dispute the conclusion of a, of a legitimately impaneled grand jury, isn't it? That's a remarkable thing, but okay, go ahead. You don't know the facts of the case. You don't know what the grand jury heard. Only the grand jury and uh, A.G. Cameron and any of his colleagues know what happened in that grand jury room, but an impaneled jury said there wasn't the evidence to move forward with uh, criminal charges above and beyond what they approved, and Kamala Harris, an officer of the court, is saying, well, that's illegitimate because I don't like the outcome much like as her position with respect to Supreme Court nominees, I suppose. So, I, you know, I get it. You know, Daniel Cameron is, is a, a black American. He's the attorney general of, of Kentucky. People gotten to see him both with this case. And then if you remember at the RNC, he's a very sharp young man. Um, but I also think it was good that Pence restrained himself. You know, it's the left's game to play identitarian politics. I don't want to play identitarian politics. It's based on the merits and our system. This decision was made. Kamala Harris, an officer of the court who, you know, then went on to lecture him about not lecturing her about the law, which was bizarre and I don't think helpful to her. Um, She's the one who wants to politicize the law. I just want to respect the justice system. I thought that was a nice contrast, actually. Uh, Ryan, you're on uh, the Dan Prof show. Hey, Dan, honored to speak with you. I think Pence won flat out. Uh, two quick points. Uh, my admittedly snarky response to the fifth grader question at the very end would have been the reason that the media coverage is so bad right now is because the media sucks. Go back to class, sweetie. Second, uh, on the discussion on uh, climate change, I know there were more important topics to discuss, but I- I'm just really, and you talk about it all the time on your show, 
when are Republicans going to challenge the premise that scientists totally agree on man-made climate change while also not propping up the premise that the scientific community is in complete agreement that life begins at conception? Mm. Oh, interesting. Yeah, I, I like that juxtaposition. Thanks for the call, Ryan. Uh, we'll pick it up there. Take more of your calls. 888-291-2222. Dan Prof Show back right after this. seat and sharpen your pencils class is in session with professor dan proft and the dan proft show Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show. Thank you for joining us. Phone lines 888-291-2222. 888-291-2222. Reviews coming in for tonight's vice presidential debate. Man of the people has weighed in. Uh, no, that's not me. I aspire to be that, but that's Ken Bone. Remember Ken Bone? 2016 uh, debate in St. Louis, right? He is the uh, Southern Illinois coal plant operator. And he asked the fossil fuel question, uh, what do you do to make uh, our energy cleaner but also protect the jobs of uh, people in the fossil the fossil fuel industry like myself? Well, Ken Bone uh, tweeted this actually sort of this this morning before the debate. But I think it actually is somewhat a commentary on the debate and the two camps. All morning, the Trump supporters have been nice to me, even though I don't like Trump. The Biden camp has been blanking all over me. Because I don't like Biden. Do these people really not see how much this behavior pushes bystanders toward the right? Well, I don't think they do, Ken, and I hope they continue to not see it. Uh, not see it was a little play on words. Did you see what I did there? Okay, taking uh, your calls. Let's go to uh, Monica. You're on the Dan Prof Show. Hello. Hi, I'm sorry. No, you're good. Um, yeah, I'm just really pissed about the moderators. Okay. Why does the GOP allow it to have such biased moderators? I don't get it. I mean, the questions, the suppositions that, that the moderator posed were all from the leftist perspective. Mm-hmm. Why do they allow it? Uh, that's a great question, Monica. Thanks for the call. Um, yeah, I don't know. You know, if I was, I, I yeah, I, they they just want to get uh, Joe Biden uh, in a, in a debate hall, uh, and they're willing to make compromises on the moderator. You know, I mean, Susan Page wasn't. Um, I I don't know. I don't even know how to the rating system here because it's so monolithic. The mindset of the D.C. press corps. I mean, who can you get? I mean, for the Fox debate. Uh, where you had a, somebody from Fox being the moderator. Instead of Chris Wallace, maybe they could have got Brett Baer. That would have been a little bit more even-handed, clearly. But maybe the Biden camp wouldn't have agreed to Brett Baer. You know, I, I don't know. But I think um, after these first two debates, this may be instructive for the GOP going forward that they're going to have to take a harder line. There, there could have been concern about Joe Biden ducking the debates altogether, and they wanted to get Joe Biden on a debate stage. But I do agree with you. 
also uh, the format now in this vice presidential debate. We talked a little bit about it earlier in the show. Uh, now you now have two minutes uninterrupted. You now have one minute to respond uninterrupted. You have 15 seconds to respond to the respond uninterrupted. I got it. Just, you know, go ahead, respond. Go ahead, it's your turn. And, oh, by the way, you don't need, you know, two paragraphs worth of lead-in to these questions. You're not a participant. You're a facilitator. Just ask the question on the merits and let the candidates take it wherever they want to take the question, however they want to address the particular topic, because they're going to do it anyway. So all of your some experts say this and a recent survey said that, you know what, it's fascinating. You can read a question that somebody prepared for you. Good for you, Susan Page or Chris Wallace or whoever. Good for you. I want to hear from the candidates. And so they need to have command of that information at the ready in their answer if they want to make any sense and provide specifics. It's way too much Susan Page tonight. Even agreeing with Monica's point. It would have bothered me less because uh, I assume it from the outset that you're going to have questions that start from the premises of the left. Just too much Susan Page being present in this debate. Too much time eaten up by Susan Page. And it's a combination of the rules agreed to in part, perhaps. Sure. OK, fine. Whatever the reason, it was too much. And, and uh, frankly, it makes Mike Pence's performance that much stronger because he had to deal with that friction in addition to. Uh, what he knew was going to be coming from Kamala Harris, which is, you know, rinsing and repeating the same cliches and uh, thinly uh, and, and thin lines of, of attack against the president that you hear on every Sunday talk show. Veronica, you're on the Dan Prop show. Uh, yeah, I just wanted to comment on the debate. Uh, I noticed that every time Kamala started talking and was talking too much and almost like going to be ready to hang herself the the moderator would stop her and uh not let her continue but then when pence would get going on something that was a good point she'd stop him yeah she was more aggressive with pence generally speaking and i th- i agree with that I'll take more of your calls 888-291-2222 we'll be right back on the dan prof show Exposing political fakers, fixers, and takers. He's Dan Prof, and this is the Dan Prof Show. One thing we all know about Joe, he puts it all out there. That's what the ladies say, no question about it. That's what the ladies say about old shoe leather. Corn Pops buddy, Scranton Joe. That was Kamala Harris tonight talking about Joe Biden's transparency, sometimes too transparent, wouldn't you say? Uh, not to make light of serious allegations against Joe Biden like those made by Tara Reid, but uh, nonetheless, uh, I wanted to get to um, some substantive matters. Uh, in a, We've spent a lot of time on style. Take more of your calls, too. Appreciate your patience. 888-291-2222. There were a couple of things that Kamala Harris said that I thought um, Mike Pence could have gone after. I mean, there's a lot for him to go after. and He went after a lot of it. I thought he made a number of important points to really own most of the segments in that debate, if not all of them, really. I can't think of one where he didn't. But she said something about foreign policy. And, you know, it was sort of this phony baloney 
contrivance about, you know, she and Joe spend so much time talking about foreign policy. I'm sure, you know, she's on the Senate Intelligence Committee, which was the most ironic line of the night delivered by Kamala Harris. And she said this, she said, foreign policy is all about relationships. That's what she learned from Joe Biden. Um, that may indeed be what she learned from Joe Biden, given how well his family has done anywhere. Joe Biden has been the point person for foreign policy for a presidential administration. Uh, but foreign policy is not about relationships. Uh, U.S. foreign policy is about advancing U.S. interests. It's not about making friends. That was such a childish, sophomoric description in terms of the question being, you know, give us the foundation of uh, your thinking when it comes to U.S. foreign policy. You don't have to lay out a whole, like, you know, principled realism framework like uh, one of, like, like, you know, Robert O'Brien would or Pompeo would if he was asked the question. But to say, like, the first principle of foreign policy is relationships, no, it isn't. It's U.S. interests. And how do we strategically advance U.S. interests? And that could be um, uh, making overtures to people that uh, are difficult to deal with and trying to be constructive. And it can also be playing hardball. But it's never about adding, you know, uh, followers to your Twitter feed or whatever it was she was saying. I just thought that was ridiculous. And uh, I'm sure no one in the D.C. press corps will pick up on it. Pence could have. Maybe it'll be revisited if Joe Biden repeats it next week. John, you're on the Dan Prof Show. Hey, Dan, how you doing? Good. I actually uh, wrote you in for governor uh, against uh, Bruce Rauner back Last oh, time he was up for oh, election. Thank you very much. I narrowly lost. <laughs> well, hey, you got a constituency of one. There you go. Anyway, uh, to your point on the whole foreign policy aspect of things, uh, I thought that Mike Pence actually missed a great opportunity to trumpet this administration's accomplishments in the Middle East when Kamala Harris brought up the whole Iranian peace deal, and I put peace in quotes. Um, Mike Pence could have come back and said that, well, the greatest thing about uh, for, about the peace deal with Iran was that Iran got $1.8 million from it, and then it was also the biggest impediment to Israel making peace deals with other Islamic countries. And once we, got, once we stepped out, we've got uh, Israel is now at peace, has peace treaties with nine other Middle Eastern countries. Yeah, no, I think that's I think that's a good point, John. Um, I think that's fair. There can always be incorporate more. He's got limited time. He's got Susan Page you know, proctoring him on his time. But, yeah, I agree. It would have been nice to develop like one more layer to that answer. Uh, now, on the flip side, again, to be fair to Pence, because I did, do think he scored a lot of points in this area, too. And the exchange on China was remarkable that was sort of inc- the the foreign policy is about personal relationships was sort of included in that but kamala harris saying we lost the trade war with china and talking about uh, the loss of manufacturing jobs we were having a resurgence of manufacturing jobs until we shut down the economy as mike pence properly pointed out in response but something else he said just sort of as a as a uh, foundational statement um lost the 
trade war with China, Joe Biden never fought it. Joe Biden has been a cheerleader for communist China through over the last several decades. So I, I thought it's important, not just in the narrow context of trade with China, but in the broader context of everything we know about China, from their human rights abuses to uh, the uh, intellectual piracy and, of course, to their culpability for the spread of COVID-19. Who do you want in the White House? Somebody taking a hard line with the Chinese communists or somebody that thinks it's about making friends with them? David in Lansing, Illinois. Hi. uh, I believe the candidates are, uh, especially Biden and Harris, are splitting hairs over their opponent's character and rather than policy. And I also believe that uh, Pence and Trump are behind in the views of Americans because because of this kind of dumbing down, tit-for-tat kind of character war. I think the most important part of the debate was when Pence gave a very brief history of of U.S. government lesson, and he pointed out that uh, Biden and Harris would pack the court, and the result would be uh, endangering the separation of powers. He's given a brief history lesson, and that's what we need. And so, and so Congress uh, people and senators, both at the federal level and the state level, should take a lesson from this. If you're listening, we need to give the American public simple lessons, especially to the left, about how government in the U.S. is different and how it gives, you know, like, for example, the Declaration of Independence and the Bill of Rights stops the government from silencing Antifa and BLM as they, you know, you know, assemble and they have their free speech and they have the right to petition, although it like erupts. They, they you know, uh, people in government need to educate the populace yeah. and, and be and, and, and Pence crushed it by being even Stephen. Thanks for the call, David. It, um, one one point on that. Uh, he was um, it, he was good on the SCOTUS segment. He was. Um, if, if this is a bit nitpicking, but it would have been nice for him to connect one more dot to explain how packing the court uh, uh, disrupts the prospect of judicial independence on the high court and use Ruth Bader Ginsburg's own argument from 2019 to do so. All right, come on. Coming up uh, when we come back, we're going to close the show with a few more of your calls. So stay tuned. More of the Dan Prof Show right after this. He's always got the real story. This is the Dan Prof Show. You are fake news. Welcome back to the show, and I just want to get one more answer in because this went back and forth uh, a little bit. So just to correct the record, do you know be your uh, Catholic uh, politifact, if you will? Uh, and it was this uh, matter of Joe Biden's record on fracking. Joe Biden on fracking. She kept saying Kamala Harris that uh, Joe Biden would not ban fracking because a recognition of how important uh, those jobs have been to grow the energy sector, to help America become energy independent and so forth. Well, um, I, I mean, I, this is, I guess the position is things you say in the primary don't matter because, again, January 25th, Joe Biden, in an exchange with the New Hampshire voter, uh, 
uh, I think it was actually January 24th, but uh, voter. What, what about, say, stopping fracking? Biden, yes. And stopping pipeline infrastructure, yes. What is unclear about that? Nothing. Kamala Harris, Joe Biden recasting their position because that position is untenable in the Midwest, particularly Pennsylvania and Ohio. Period. The end. End of discussion. Allie, you're on the Dan Prof Show. Thanks for calling. Hi, thanks for taking my call. Well, first of all, I just wanted to sit, um, thank you for mentioning Ken Bone. That's literally the only time I laughed tonight. Um, okay, all right. You're I welcome. Just wanted to, <laughs> I just forgot about that guy. But no, I feel like I need to watch the debate again because I spent most of the time just yelling at Kamala Harris because I don't understand how almost half of the country can just believe what she's saying. When I, I've never heard so many lies in one debate, and that's really bad to say that. I mean lie after lie after lie and she just i feel like she just doesn't care at all it's just crazy to me and scary quite frankly how many people believe her i don't really know how our country will come back from that let me um, let me ask you a question yeah. your perspective yeah. i mean this accusation you, uh, that stephanopoulos made people are saying there was a lot of mansplaining going on did you feel like mike pence was at all disrespectful or uh, in terms of interrupting her or quote unquote mansplaining to her? No, actually, quite the opposite. I felt like she, I mean, she wasn't mansplaining, but she was quite condescending in her demeanor. I'm not surprised that he, you know, that that was said about Mike Pence. That's obviously going to be the first thing that they say that he was mansplaining, but no, not at all. He was respectful, clear, and concise. So, yeah. He was. Thanks for the call, Allie. And I think, you know, uh, I don't want to make more of a vice presidential debate than uh, than than one can uh, realistically, but uh, I think this starts to turn things for for Trump if it if you can build upon it. Otherwise, it's a fleeting moment, and there's going to be a lot of other competing news stories. But if Trump can do his best impersonation of Pence, uh, strategically, uh, restraint wise, uh, measured wise then, um, you know, those next two debates actually could close the show for President Trump for re-election. Thank you for joining us on this edition of the Dan Prof Show. Appreciate all the callers. Class is in session with Professor Dan Proft and the Dan Proft Show.